This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark. And he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there, while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil, and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those who were around him along with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and they indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root, and endure only for a while. When trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things, come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit, thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel basket, or under the bed, and not on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. He also said, The kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground, and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself. First the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. He also said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
know Jesus is to know him as the sower who goes out into the world broadcasting the seed that is the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is to know him as the farmer, the sower in this parable. Which is to say that we know Jesus as a teacher, as one saying things to us, as God, who has left us not merely with uh, a record of instructions or a system for us to follow, but God who speaks to us in the present, in human language and beyond it. It is to know the Lord as one who is already, always and everywhere generous to shower humanity with the promise of life. And the question is never whether or not the seed is sown. But the question is only whether we will consent to have it take root in our lives. It's a pretty long passage of scripture we just read, as you might have noticed. Um, and as you may also have noticed, there are several different registers in which Jesus describes um, the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom in terms of seed. There's at least three or four different ways that Jesus is talking about seed in that reading that I just offered you. There's several different parables that are all kind of linked together there. And so what I want to do initially um, is, is just try to focus on the, the metaphor itself of the seed. To try to begin by recovering some of the wonder just of the fact that Jesus is talking about the gospel as a seed. So that, in whatever one of these parables we're focusing on, we can remember the strong promise and the potency, the power that the word of God, that God's speaking to us, holds for us. So we're going to start off just kind of thinking about what, what gives that Jesus is talking about the word as seed. Right? And then after that, we're going to focus on that first part, that first big parable, where Jesus breaks down the seed into four different kinds of places that the seed can live. So, Jesus, throughout this reading, um, not just in the parable of the sower, but throughout this reading, and anywhere that we find him preaching, he is the sower, and his word is the seed. Construing the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom, construing it as seed, what that means is that the word of God is powerful. It means that the words Jesus says to us are potent. They are powerful. The word of God has potency. Part of the way that you can comprehend what kind of power seeds have um, is, is by considering the way that seeds are portable. Right? So that might seem like a weird thing to say, but think about, just follow with me for a second here. To understand the intrinsic power of a seed, you can begin by thinking about the fact that seeds are portable, that they can be transported from here to there. The power of seeds, that is to say, is not just the promise that this, that in this little thing is, is contained um, the promise of a life, whether it be a tree or a tomato plant or a grapevine or whatever it is. It's not just that it can produce life, 
but that it, that, that life can be taken from over here and planted over there, and then in that place, that, that life will begin to take root. Wherever seeds fall, they bring with them the promise of life. So, I think the closest we, Jesus gets to sort of honing in on this in this passage, at least we got to play anywhere he's talking about seeds in this passage. But to me, the mustard seed is, is the part of this passage that illustrates this best. And for me, whenever I read uh, this parable of the mustard seed, whether here or other places in the gospel, I frequently find myself thinking about sequoia seeds, right? Um, has anybody ever seen sequoia? Sequoias, redwoods, redwood trees, raise your hand. Not very many Okay. Well, they're big, really big trees. Um, the largest ones, um, so far as I know, on the planet. Um, and if you've ever been to see, uh, like, Sequoia National Forest, or any other place where the redwoods grow out in the west, um, and you've actually looked at sequoia seed, they of course are not very large. They come in a little cone um, that looks sort of like a pine cone, but actually on closer inspection it's quite a bit different. That's much smaller than a typical pine cone. And it is laden, it is packed with much, much smaller seeds. Um, so, I'm trying to figure out how I want to illustrate this. Um, does anybody know any kind of like fun facts about sequoia cones in national parks? Any national park nerds here? Okay. No. Huh? Sequoia tree is really big. Yeah, yeah. No, the cones are really small. And interestingly, all the National Park Service people, if you look at their hats, um, their hats always have this little tassel on them that has sequoia seeds or sequoia cones on it. Often their belt buckles do as well. Um, which I think is interesting, not least because uh, there's only like a couple places that these things grow. There's like tons and tons of national parks, but there's a very small percentage of them where sequoias actually grow. And yet, for some reason, the wonder of the National Park Service is sort of encapsulated in the sequoia seed. Um, okay, so if you've ever been to Redwood National Forest or, or Sequoia National Forest or National Park or whatever, you will see signs around the place that are like, don't steal the cones. Um, which already sort of seems to suggest that there's something about the portability of these things that's kind of attractive, right? People want to take these things from here to there, right? Um, and as you might have imagined, um, I don't break rules just for the heck of it, but I also don't always consider there being a rule to be automatically indicate that I should follow it. And so when I was at Sequoia National Forest a lot of years ago, I was like, those signs are great, I'm definitely taking this thing. I'm definitely taking one of these sequoia cones with me. So I pocketed one, took it with me. Mostly kind of forgot about it until like a few summers later when I was planting a flat of, of uh, tomatoes uh, for a garden that I was growing. And I was like, and I, I happened upon this Ziploc bag with sequoia cone in it. And it had opened up long ago and all the seeds had, had fallen out. And I was like, what the heck? I'll, none of these are probably any good anymore, but I'll try to plant some in my tomato flat or whatever. So. Um, I had this thing sitting out on my porch, grew some tomatoes out of it, planted them, and honestly I completely forgotten about the sequoia seeds that were in there, was neglecting this flat, wasn't watering it anymore, until one day I just happened to be walking by, it was just sitting there, this like dried up, shriveled pieces of dirt in this seed flat, and I was like, what is that growing there? And upon closer inspection, there was a tiny sequoia tree there growing in this seed flat. And the delight of that moment isn't just like, ooh, a sequoia tree. 
those are cool. But was like, there's one here. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not in California, I'm at that point in East Tennessee, but here's a square tree. And it, it, it's, there's a sense of wonder that the seed is what made that be the case, that it could take place in this place and not just in that one. Um, seeds in Scripture. The word seed in Scripture um, points the way that you can follow the word seed throughout Scripture. You can see it as being both literally and figuratively one of the most important words in the Bible. Right? At the very beginning of Scripture, the story of, of the emergence of creation is in no small part the story of seeds and of the way that, that plants bear seeds. Seeds are one of the original and enduring wonders and miracles that is intrinsic to creation as envisioned by and described by the Word of God. So if you read the opening two chapters of Genesis, in this description of the cosmos, not just Earth, but the universe as we know it, it's a description that is marked by an almost startling concision and economy of language. Like, it's not at all an exhaustive description. We do not end the description of creation in Scripture. Uh, find an archive that includes, you know, walruses, or peregrine falcons, or sunsets, or any number of other things that are really beautiful and interesting that are a part of creation. It's a super concise Description. It's not trying to be exhaustive. And yet, one of the things with which that description is deeply preoccupied is the fact that there are seeds. It's emphasized over and over and over again that the world that God made is a seed-bearing world. It's deeply preoccupied with seeds. Cheetahs don't get to play. Seeds do in the creation story. Seed is... One of the things this points to, seed is, with few exceptions, common across all kinds of life. Right? Anything that you can say is alive, probably seed is in some way at play in its being alive. Very few alive things do not in some way have their life in and through and because of the fact that they are seed-bearing. And this is true of lettuce as much as it is true of redwood trees, as much as it is true of salmon, and as much as it is true of human beings. All of these alive things are things that are alive and they continue to, to produce life through their seed-bearing characteristics. The very few outliers there might be in the world that are alive things that don't have seed to explain their life are still liable to make reference in some way to seeds. Seed is so ubiquitous. It's such a ubiquitous, such a constant feature of the world that we live in and of what it means for things to be alive. It's so densely constant and such a basic dimension of our world that it takes work to remember how amazing seeds are. But probably all of us, even if we have to do work right now to be amazed by seeds, 
We didn't always have to, to do work to be amazed by seeds. Probably all of us have been amazed by seeds at least a few times in our life. What childhood education in the United States is devoid of the wonder of seeds? Everyone in this room, I would wager, everyone in this room can remember at some point putting a lima bean in a Ziploc bag with a wet paper towel and being delighted in your elementary class. Actually, Kalila did this just recently. As a grown-up. But in your elementary or kindergarten class and being delighted to, this, to see the taproot spring out of there and the beginning of the leaf that already was apparently tucked away inside of that thing invisibly begin to become invisible. Everyone in this world did that as a kid. And it didn't need much explanation for why that was a thing that was worth doing and paying attention to. Or if you didn't do that, you, you might have grown grass in a red solo cup with dirt in it. Yes? Anyone did do that in elementary school? Okay, I'm sorry for y'all. That's unfortunate that you have that kind of childhood. Everywhere you stand, there is seed beyond reckoning packed under your feet. Every bit of air that you walk through is liable to be air with seed floating through it. If a patch of dirt virtually anywhere on this planet is scourged in some way, such that the life that's already growing in it appears to be sort of laid bare or laid waste, if it's scourged by wildfire or by chemical herbicide, if it's drowned by a flood, even if it's laid waste in a nuclear explosion, before too terribly long, in short order, it will be regrown by seed that was already laying dormant in that soil for who knows how long. Or if not grown by seed that was already packed into that soil, it will be colonized by wind-borne seed or by seed transported to it in the droppings of birds or rodents or ungulates. Anybody know what ungulates are? Huh? Hooked. Hooked ones. There you go, that works. Or if not by ungulates, by seed clinging to pant legs and shoelaces of human beings treading over the soil that only appears to be bare. Um, I'm a bow hunter, I think some of you know this, and by the grace of God, bow season has started recently uh, in October. And uh, a few, uh, sometime last week, I hunted a place called Russell Sage Wildlife Management Area over in Monroe. Uh, it's this big, like, 30-ish thousand acre tract of land, most of which is heavily timbered, or it's like this, like, uh, some of it's like duck hunting land. Um, but a lot of it is this really densely packed forest. And so uh, I went in there, and no big surprise, first night I didn't see a single deer. I mean, I saw nothing except some big fox squirrels and mosquitoes. And I'm, I'm on my way out, carrying my tree stand on my back, and as I get to my truck, this, I'd seen this other headlamp coming down uh, the same path that I'd been walking out of the woods on. And, uh, and it, it was kind of odd because it seemed like this, this person was like exceptionally tall. And so then finally this person gets to the parking lot where I'm parked and it's like, oh, it's because she's on a horse. There's a lady riding a horse um, coming out of the woods, which I was like, I don't know, people did that out here. People were just out here riding horses. So we struck up this conversation. She was like, oh, yeah, sorry, I figured you're probably bow hunting. There's no point in bow hunting here. There's no deer in this part of the wildlife management area. And I was like, I noticed. Uh, thank you. 
She's like, yeah, if you want to kill a deer, you really need to go to where the soybeans used to be. Um, and I knew what she was talking about because I'd scouted that part of the wildlife management area last February. So this is this massive tract of land. I don't know how many thousands of acres it is, but this huge tract of land that Russell Sage uh, only acquired in, in relatively recent years, that for years and years and years was just part of the floodplain that was being um, farmed in row crops in the same way that most of that you know, flat land from Monroe to the Mississippi River is farmed. And they recently acquired it and became a part of, uh, of the wildlife management area. And I knew from having scouted it last year that, in fact, there are a ton of deer there. It's absolutely laced with deer tracks. I don't know how to hunt it because there's no trees. But I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, that's where all the deer are. I just don't know how to get to them. So here's, what, here's what's striking about that acreage. Um, for generations, that ground that today is astonishingly full of life. And is a haven for wildlife in ways that no other part of that 30,000 acres of land is. For generations, those acres were pillaged by rapacious, conventional farming practices. Practices of farming that attempt, through the use of massive fossil fuel-powered machinery, chemicals, and genetic engineering, to reduce the soil to just this passive, utterly sterile, growing medium. Um, in many ways, the farming practices that you see in the, in the monoculture farms in that part of the state and in so many other parts of the country, they are a battle against the potency of seeds. They are an attempt to overcome all that life that's packed underfoot, all that potency of seed. It's kind of an unending attempt to keep the ground bare, to work against the bent of the earth, and creation that is seed-bearing and that always is trying to cover up bare soil. And yet, when a wildlife management area acquires a tract of land like that, where for decades people have been trying to nullify the potency of seed, they don't do anything to it most of the time. They don't re-sow the seed. And it's been, it's been sterilized, supposedly, for generations of farmers, right? And a matter of a year, it is frequently the most preferred location for wildlife. In a matter of a year, it's no longer bare, and it's rich and almost impenetrable with the life that's been colonized from the seed coming up from the soil. The seed of the old forest or the marshland emerges triumphant. So given this observable power of seed, the promise that seed has to take life from one place and to bring it to another. It's not that surprising that it's such a constant metaphor throughout the canon of Scripture. That Jesus, when reaching for a way to explain the potency of his word, of the gospel, that he would reach for the metaphor of seed. It's not that surprising that the schools that Christians have sent their preachers to for forever are, are called seed beds. Seminary, that's what that word means. It's a bed of seed. It's a place where we're cultivating life and we're making something that's going to bear seeds. We're making a seed bearer to go out into the world at a seminary. The potency of seed is what creates the ominously hopeful threat in the famous quote 
of Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can kill us all day long and all you'll be doing is is spreading the church further and further throughout the world. So again, there is a strong hopefulness and promise in, in Jesus' use of this metaphor in these parables. It is the promise that the word of God itself is imbued with a kind of objective fruitfulness. That as Isaiah says in chapter 55 of Isaiah, God's word does not return void. It accomplishes something. Which suggests at the outset that if we can get ourselves in the way of the word, that if we can be people on whom the kingdom, the word of the kingdom is scattered, we kind of can't go wrong by getting ourselves in the way of the word. And yet, for all the intrinsic potency, for all the promised fruitfulness of the metaphor of seeds, the power of seeds, the promise of seeds, is not uniformly realized. It's not a guarantee that it will manifest in all places in the same way. Seeds depend, of course, on nutrients. In the soil, on water, and on light. Seeds work in symphony with the earth. The earth that can be more or less hospitable, more or less welcoming of their power and their promise. Which is why Jesus' parable of the sower is as much or more about the soil as it is a parable about the seed. So let's consider these four different places where the seed lands in Jesus' parable of the sower. I'm not going to give every one of these equal treatment. I'm going to run pretty quickly through the first one. So the first is the seed that falls on the path. Um, One thing you should note about the seed that falls on the path is it's the only one of the four that doesn't grow at all. It's the only one of the four different kinds of seeds that, that doesn't produce anything. It does not become a plant. It remains a seed. It's gobbled up by the birds. And Jesus later on, he's explaining the seed that falls on the path. He says, this is the word that's snatched away by Satan before anything can happen with it. I talked about Satan for a whole sermon last week. So all I'm going to do right now is just say this, that, that we should recognize about the seed on the path. We should recognize that we do our listening to the word of God um, in a world where the sower is never the only agent who is at work. The sower is never the only agent who is at work in this world where the seed of the kingdom is being spread. Jesus emphasized this in other parables, the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Like somebody sows their field with good seed, good wheat seed, but an enemy comes in and sows in uh, weed seeds uh, among it. So the sower's work is never unharassed or unassailed by by, by efforts that are hostile to the fruitfulness of the sower is pursuing. So so much for the seed on the path. Let's move on to the seed that's sown on rocky ground. The failure of the seed that is sown on the rocky ground to realize its potential 
to sort of have its, its full potency made manifest. The failure of these plants is that they do not become deeply rooted. It's a problem of shallowness of soil. Um, the richness of the soil, given the way that Jesus describes it, the richness of the soil itself, that there are nutrients in the soil, is not a question. But the nutrient richness of soil is never enough to make good plants. Depth of soil, with very few exceptions. Any kind of fruit-bearing plant, depth of soil is what makes the best edible plant of any kind. To understand what it is that Jesus is pointing to when he talks about soil that, that is too shallow for the plants to get rooted well, it's important to pay attention to the pace and the emotion. There's, there's a slight indicator to it. There's something about the pace at which these things grow and the emotion with which they are imbued. I'm, I'm sort of playing fast and loose with the word emotion here. What I'm pointing to is the way that Jesus talks about joy here. Um, these things grow quickly and excitedly. They receive the word with joy. Um, they have the appearance initially of flourishing. The future seems bright. And yet, whenever the sun comes up, they die. And it's not the sun that kills them. The sun is actually something they need for life, right? The fact that they're not deeply enough rooted to be able to receive from the sun what they need. Again, what's at stake with depth? What's at stake here is depth, right? And, and what's at stake in the depth of soil itself is not whether or not the plant ever comes alive to begin with, but whether or not it stays alive. What's at stake in the depth of soil is longevity. These plants don't last. By contrast, the mark of deeply rooted seed is its endurance. Um, that that weather, that sort of, regardless of the weather, regardless of the things that are changing around it, that the seed is able to continue. That the plant that grows from the seed that can get its roots down deep, that it's able to endure. And this points, as I'm going to talk about some in a minute, to the unavoidability of suffering uh, as a part of being receivers of the seed of the kingdom. So let's consider, though, for a minute, what are the causes or the temptations of shallowness? Um, I think one we can deduce from this passage is um, an attachment to comfort and, and good feelings. So, People who are the kind of soil that's rocky, that is too shallow for the Word of God to take root deeply. Um, they're not just fair-weathered Christians, right? Um, who are fine with Jesus whenever life is like peachy keen, but then when something bad happens, like their dog gets run over or they get cancer. I mean, those things are obviously not the same thing, but bad stuff happens and they don't want to be a Christian anymore because life is not as fun anymore. It's not as simple as that. That they fall away when life is hard. The people that are the shallow soil, what it is, is that their shallowness consists in the fact that they do not accept the word as a seed that is liable to bear the fruit of suffering and of persecution. 
Right? They do not, they're not willing that the seed would be something that could produce suffering and persecution in their life. They are attached to comfort and good feelings. Um, the way that I'm deriving that from this passage is that Jesus says specifically that it's on account of the word, that it's because of the seed, it's on account of the word that the persecution arises, that, that these shallowly rooted people are unable to endure. Um, the word of the gospel is the thing that causes the trouble, the difficulty, the pain. And so this is refusing to let the word of Jesus become a source of troublemaking in our lives. That's the kind of shallowness that Jesus is describing. It's deciding ahead of time that the word of God has to be an enhancement to our life, as our life already is, rather than a word that could actually upset our lives and, and bring them more deeply in order with the reign of the living God. It's deciding ahead of time that the only part of the word that we're willing to hear is a word that is palatable to us and that will make us more palatable, more agreeable, more well-accepted, and more easily understood to other people. We will not accept a seed, if we're shallow people, what that means is that we will not let a seed take root in us that could cause us to be unaccepted, that could cause us to be rejected or persecuted for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Suffering and persecution are some of the fruit that the seed of the kingdom of God produces in us. And not just the experience of suffering and persecution, but the ability to endure in the midst of suffering and persecution. Some of the potency and promise of the seed of the gospel is that wherever it takes root, the kingdom of God begins to crack the foundations of the kingdoms of men. And when the power, when a power that can be seen in the world is, is a power that overthrows the authority of worldly kingdoms. It should come as no wonder that people in whom that word has found a place to grow find themselves targeted and resisted by those still clinging to merely earthly allegiances. So, an attachment to comfort and good feelings. Another cause of shallowness is impatience. It's impatience. Death of soil. So Jesus used that word immediately, right? Immediately they received the word. This is the speed part that I'm talking about here, right? But death of soil is not an immediate thing, ever. Deep soil is never immediate. It's always something that takes a ton of time and work. Right? Time non-negotiable, and lots of work, non-negotiable. There's two different kinds of work that can help soil become deeply cultivated. Um, there's human power cultivation and plant power cultivation, right? So humans can do something to break up the soil in such a way, and we do this in more or less helpful ways, to make the deeper reaches of the soil hospitable to roots that aren't strong enough to go down deep. The cultivation of depth, as I said earlier, is one of the most crucial tasks 
for good gardening practices. Any of you that were around whenever Wesley was doing Longleaf Farm to Broadfort, you were a part of, that's what you were doing in Broadfort, and plunging, I think there were like 17 or 20 inch steel spikes, this giant fork basically into the ground, right? And just wiggling it back and forth, over and over and over again. Jumping on it, if you had to, if the soil was really compacted, right? All you're doing is sort of making a way for the deeper reaches of the soil to be loosened without having to turn it all the way over. Um, plants also can, can cultivate the deeper reaches of soil. There are certain grasses and legumes. Uh, the grasses that used to grow on the prairies and the great plains of the United States of America and some places still do. Even things like clover, like red clover that you see growing in the springtime. These kinds of plants have deep and powerful roots. When you see the plant above the ground, you're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg of that plant. And one of the, re- one of the things that they do is they kind of pioneer um, holes deep down in the soil for other plants that don't have as strong of roots as those. Some of those plants even eat rocks. They dig down deep in the soil, and they actually digest and break apart rocks. And then when they die... The, the nutrients of those rocks, as well as the sort of tunnels that their roots have dug, remain in the soil. And both the pathways for roots, as well as the nutrients of those plants, becomes available to other plants that come in behind them. Over many seasons, over thousands of years, plants doing that, fall, spring, and winter, right, in a cycle, cultivate deep deep, loamy, rich soil. When we first got to this continent and banished the people that were here before us, started banishing the people that were here before us, the Great Plains um, had very deep, I mean, there was a huge, huge depth of soil that was profoundly rich and, and soft for lots and lots of inches in a way that is almost impossible to find these days. That happened through a long process of plants cultivating the deeper reaches of the soil. Again, either way, depth of soil is labor and time intensive. It's a long game. But quite a few churches and quite a few Christians in our day have managed to hotwire the sort of flash-in-the-pan growth of rocky soil that Jesus says doesn't really count so that it appears to work over the long haul. And what Jesus is pointing to is, there are seeds that fall, they look like they're going to make it, they come up really quickly, it looks like they're flourishing, but then the next thing you know, they're withered and gone. And you would think that that's not a good program for a sustained habit of life, right? The death is what you would want. And yet our propensity to resist the long game of the deepening of soil Our aversion to death is so profound that there are arguably whole denominations, there are certainly some wildly successful specific churches that have have earned their living on hotwiring that flash in the pan fake life of the seeds sown on rocky soil so that it seems to work for the long haul. These are the so-called entrepreneurial churches, the life coach churches, where all of the word of God is so thoroughly digested and broken apart 
and dumbed down by the time you hear it, that any need to wrestle with the word, that any kind of requirement of slowness, of slow growing roots, is rendered unnecessary. Scripture in those kinds of places can be transmitted rapidly in sound bites that are already prepackaged into actionable content. Oh, I hate that phrase. Actionable content. <laughs> Teaching in such churches, and, and even outside of those kinds of church, churches, Teaching God's Word doesn't have to be written anymore. Teaching doesn't have to be written painstakingly and delivered falteringly. It can be purchased. It can be purchased and downloaded and transmitted largely mediated through video content in such a way um, that all of the all of the opacity all of the, the unclarity, all of the, the threat and the confrontation of Scripture is eliminated. The Word of God in such places is not the Word of God. It's counterfeit Word of God. It's the Word of God as grown in a laboratory. It's the Word of God planted as if it were genetically modified corn or soybeans. Guaranteed to maximize the yield of the Word. And to render that yield as something that is available to our manipulation. Right? The reason that corn and soybeans is almost the only thing that Americans grow anymore. Is because both of those are these little packages of carbohydrates and other stuff that we can shatter in all kinds of weird ways. And make them into whatever we want them to be. Right? All of that comes down not just to a style of church, but to practices of impatience with God's Word. To an addiction to, to speed and results. It's a way of approaching Christianity that focuses mostly on getting something out of it. And how many of us, that's, that's the primary way in which we evaluate the worthiness of a Bible study, of a sermon of the, uh, a church is whether or not we're getting something out of it. By which we frequently mean that we're, we're made to feel something. That we've got the semblance of vitality in life. In an emotional form. And thinking, in fact, that if we don't feel something and feel it pretty intensely, that something must be wrong. Right? If God's not getting our heart rate up, then maybe God's not there doing anything at all. Or at least we need to go someplace else to get the fix. Jesus says, that doesn't work. We've made it into a thing that we, we're sort of forcing to work. Does that make sense? We cater to that shallowness these days. By contrast, the teaching and the preaching in your life, as well as your own practice of reading scripture... This is why I hate study Bibles, right? They should aim at endurance through depth. Endurance through depth. 
The kind of preaching you should crave, the kind of small group you should go to, the kind of reading you should do yourself on a daily basis with God's Word, it should aim at endurance through depth. If you're going to aim at that kind of reading and listening, then you have to allow the text to remain inscrutable. You have to to allow the potency of the seed of the Word of God to to retain some of its mystery. The potency of the seed, as described by Jesus in in this passage that we read tonight, one of the most important things he says about it is a little bit later on, in verses 26 through 28, where he says this, The kingdom of God is as someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day. And the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces itself. First the stalk, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But the potency of the seed is partly evinced in the fact that we don't understand, nor can we cause or manipulate the growth that comes from it. The seed gets sown, and then that guy doesn't he, he gets to enjoy the growth of this. But he certainly isn't a, like at the wheel of that process. What's going on in the soil has an intrinsically cryptic and unknown character. Letting the roots dig deep in our lives and go to work. And letting that process remain inscrutable to us. Which is to say we don't have to understand every part of the scripture that we read. There's quite a bit of what we read tonight that I couldn't, what, just what we read tonight, that I could not readily tell you, I get what Jesus is saying. And we do not need to eliminate the way that Scripture seems to resist us in that way. That it invades our understanding. Letting the roots do the work in us. The promise of the fruit taking shape in us. All of that takes place frequently in the darkness and in depths that are unsearchable and that are beyond what we can see and understand. Secondly, we can slow down. We can wait patiently. This is already kind of implied in inscrutability. But the Word of God asks us, the seed of the kingdom requires of us that we slow down and receive the fruitfulness of the Word as something that unfolds steadily over the long haul. And so we need to prize practices of prayer and reading that cherish consistency and commitment rather than immediacy, rather than immediately being able to say what I got out of it, rather than always being able to wrap your brain around what's being said or even what God's asking of you. Third kind of seed or soil that Jesus describes, the seed that's growing amid the thorns. Um, and maybe because we live in Louisiana, I just automatically sort of, when I, when I read thorns, I think about briars, right? So the seed growing amid thorns. Or maybe uh, blackberries. You know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever checked through the woods and got tangled up with blackberries? Yeah. The call has. Yeah, a couple of years. What? Stickers. Stickers. There you go. That's fine. Whatever you want to use, that works. So verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and they choked it so that it yielded no grain. Now that word choked... You would, it would be understandable if you interpreted that to mean the seed fell among the thorns and it got killed. Um, 
But the description here does not mean that the plant died, right? But that it lived in vain. It was not choked to death, but rather it was choked in such a way that it yielded no fruit. It failed to do the thing for which it exists. I have seen a variety of plants like this. Whether it be plants that are, that are planted in a garden that doesn't get enough light throughout the day. And so they reach out wistfully longer and longer and longer. And no matter how far they stretch, they can never quite get to the sun. So there's no chance that they mean, It's big. It might be all over the place, right? But it's never going to make a fruit. Or tomato plants that were grown in potting soil that had already been sort of exhausted by other plants, all right? And that they might get huge, because I, I dumped a bunch of horse manure in the potting soil. I thought that was enough, but all horse manure really has in it is nitrogen, right? Which can make really big plants that bloom abundantly. They might be 10 or 11 feet tall, but because of the deprivation in the soil, because of stuff that is either currently growing there now or has grown there in the past, those tomato plants, no matter how big they are, no matter how many blooms they have, the blooms will fall off, they'll never set fruit. What Jesus is describing with the seed that falls among thorns is the word of God strangled, not to death, but strangled in such a way that the word grows as a bedraggled, starved plant that cannot bear fruit. The fact that plants choked by thorns do not die. The fact that they don't die it makes the thorn patch the most dangerous place for the seeds to fall, I would say. It would be better if it did choke them to death than that they grew in the first place. Um, here's what I mean. A straightforward rejection of the seed of the word would be better because if we don't reject the word of God, but we allow it to take root without uprooting the things that are going to compete with it, our life is liable to appear devoted to the Bible or devoted to the word of God. Such people can appear to know a great deal about the Bible. They might even appear to be serious about following it and yet fail to bear the fruit that the Word of God exists for. Does that make sense? The plant remains, and yet it's fruitless. So take a look at verses 18 and 19, at Jesus' explanation of the parable. Um, this is a place where he specifies what kinds of plants the thorns are. Others are those sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the Word, but the cares of the world, and the lure of wealth, and the desire of other things come in and choke the Word. And it yields nothing. So there's three things here: cares of the word, um, cares of, uh, of the world. Other translations say the cares of life, the lure of wealth, and the desire of other things. These three things are all deeply related to one another and inseparable from one another. Um, I'm going to focus for a second on that middle one, the lure of wealth. I'm going to pick on rich Christians for a minute. Partly because it's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, but also because it's illuminating uh, of some important things. Um, so, the lure of wealth 
is allowed to grow in the lives of rich Christians in such a way that it constrains the word of God, but does not kill it. And as such, the word grows, but only in strangely contorted and strange ways. Strange ways, I'm sorry. Strangely contorted and strange ways. The word of God grows, but it's contorted. It's twisted. And despite that growth, no real fruit can come of it. So rich Christians, one of the ways that you can tell that they've done something weird to the word of God, of the, the word of God, is just the fact that there is such a thing, it appears, as rich Christians. If you read the New Testament, it's by no means clear that it's allowed under any circumstances for Christians to turn out to be what we would call rich people. Rich Christians are people who, in the face of the lure of the, of the lure of wealth, I love the fishing language here, the lure of wealth, they've taken the bait, hook, line, and sinker. They're going after wealth in an unreserved way, and they're getting it. They have gotten it. There's more than a few such Christians around Ruston, Louisiana. In fact, there might even be a whole church or two, or three, that specializes and caters to them. Which doesn't mean that there are a few churches where there's only rich people going to them. But there are a few churches why it's not a coincidence that 95% of the, of the elites of wrestling are in those churches. Rich Christians, rather than just go ahead and serve mammon, who remember Jesus says, you can't serve both God and wealth. You've got to serve one or the other. Rather than take Jesus at his word, have decided to roll the dice to see if maybe actually they can. They wager that there's room in the soil for both the word of the gospel as well as the thorns of wealth. Which is to say they deprive the seed of God's word from the outset. They deprive it from the outset of the possibility that it might have the obvious effects that it should. They eliminate the possibility that God would call them to live in love of him and love of neighbor in ways that would make it impossible for them to become as wealthy as they are. The words most obvious and specific fruit is, is denied in the in the sort of straightforward and simple ways that it seems like the word of aiming at in the gospel. But the word of God so constrained turns Christian discipleship not into nothing, but into a kind of pseudo-discipleship, into a spiritualized social hygiene. Right? So these Christians, it doesn't mean that they're they're not still serious about reading the Bible, even to the point that they like police their behavior and other people's behavior and say a lot of things about Jesus and the Bible. But their discipleship has been turned into a spiritualized social hygiene that is replete with faith-manufactured fruit. In rich Christianity, in Christianity that has taken the bait of the lure of wealth, discipleship becomes behavior management. Just behavior management. And the behaviors that get emphasized are always the ones that lie cleanly within the sphere of what people can accomplish themselves, safely, 
Guard it from the actual transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Their behaviors that they can accomplish themselves, that don't risk being vulnerable to the transformation of the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, that leave their money alone. So what these kinds of Christians focus on and emphasize are things like niceness, being nice and happy, not saying cuss words, being well-dressed and presentable, unwavering smiles, dogged positivity, being courteous to other drivers in traffic or at the grocery store, being a good example of Jesus at restaurants by praying before meals and giving waitresses good tips. These are the things. Am I the only one that knows Christians that take those things very seriously and actually are deeply focused on them? Yes or no? Okay. These things become the markers of a counterfeit holiness pursued tenaciously in lieu of the real fruit of the gospel, instead of the real fruit of the gospel. Now, just to be clear, I'm all about giving waitresses good tips. Right? I'm not saying that those things are bad things, but they're notably less, they're, they're notably more harmless than the kind of transformation that the Word of God actually seeks to bring about in our lives. They're very safe things. That any good red-blooded sub- suburbanite American can do under their own power. Those fruits should not fool anyone as the kind that grow from the seed of the gospel. And yet, frequently, because the word still seems to be present in these people's lives, it does nonetheless pass as real Christianity, as fruit of the kingdom. With that said, the lure of wealth, not just being wealthy, is what Jesus is talking about here. The lure of wealth. And though not all of us in this room would count as rich people, the lure of wealth is something that is liable to be a very voracious briar in any of our lives. In the place that the seeds of the kingdom seek to fall and take root. None of us are free from the warnings that Jesus is issuing here. You, even as people that aren't making any money yet, are not free at all from the lure of wealth. And many of you, this is the place where you begin to either pattern your life in accordance with that lure or not, is while you're in college. The cares of life, the cares of the world, this is a phrase that basically means worrying about the stuff that you need to live. Worrying about food and drink and clothing. The cares of life. What human being isn't liable to let their life be ordered by their needs? And how few people there are in this world that would suggest that there's anything wrong with that. With your life being nothing more than the pursuit of the satisfaction of the needs that all of us have. And then this one is the most horrifically broad of all the things, of all the different kinds of thorns that Jesus names. 
The desire for other things. The desire for other things. Um, there isn't anything but the Lord that doesn't fall under that description. The desire for other things. This points to the way that our very will, what we want, what we are bent toward choosing, is corrupted in such a way that our desire in a fallen world, it seeks to come to rest in the things that are made instead of the one who made them. And so this, if if we're to receive this warning, what it means is that we need to admit that our desires as they already are, are a lot like a riotous, small patch of briars. It's trying to take over anything else that might try to grow um, in that place. To accept this warning is to ask ourselves, what is it that we want intensely? Or what is like the myriad of desires that we have that, that drive our life in a singular direction or maybe that, t- that constantly are tearing us back and forth in multiple directions so we can never decide which way we're going at all. But what are the desires that are so elemental to your soul that you don't take that you take them for granted, that they're not in question, and it would never occur to you that those desires, if not attended and potentially uprooted, that they will displace the fruitfulness of the seed of the kingdom. Receiving the word of God entails an ongoing process of uprooting these kinds of thorns, cares of life, lure of wealth, the desire for other things. And these seeds are packed in the, into the soil of every one of us. It's important to note that you can't get rid of them before the Word of God begins to take root. But it's as the Word of God is growing in us that it becomes conspicuous that the choking um, veracity of these other things is revealed for what it is. And so it's, it's the, the seed of the kingdom growing that makes it possible for us to know what it is that needs to be uprooted. Does that make sense? Okay, then there's the seed in good soil. Verse 20. These are the ones sown on good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. I'll say just two things uh, about this. The first is I want us to dwell on this word accept. And the second is I want us to notice that even in this good soil, that there is still a further gradient of truthfulness. Right? 30, 60, a hundredfold. Okay, so first of all, let's look at this word accept. These are the ones that are on good soil. They hear the word and they accept it. And they accept it. Um, so this word mirrors and yet says something more than what Jesus said about the rocky soil above. They're, they receive the word immediately and they do so with joy. This word acceptance um, encompasses what it is that those people are doing and yet it carries it further than that. The word suggests a welcome, and, and a real unqualified kind of welcome. Um, it accepts with no footnotes. It accepts with no conditions. It takes it in, embraces the seed. It gives to it, this kind of soil gives to the seed, 
everything that it can offer so that the seed might give to it the fullest possible measure of its promise and yield. So it's, a, it's an acceptance in the sense that it gives, the, it gives to the seed all that it can offer. And also, therefore, it gives into the seed. Right? It gives into this, the seed that it's welcoming um, rather than trying to constrain or determine in any way, shape, or form what it is that the seed will make. Nor does it say, um, I'll give you so much and no more. I'm willing to, to offer myself to you insofar as you don't ask any, like, like any more than this right here. Does that make sense? It gives in to the life and the promise of the seed. This word accept then entails a kind of consent, we might say. It's a hospitality as well as a kind of consent or a kind of obedience, almost, a consent. It's a word reminiscent of that moment in the Gospel of Luke where Mary, having listened to the word spoken to her by the messenger from God, the angel Gabriel, has come to announce to her that that she's to be the bearer of God's own son. She responds to that word by saying, let it be to me. Let it be to me. Something's happening to her, right? According to thy word. Let it be to me. According to thy word. And with that posture, with those words, with that willingness, she's embodying acceptance. She is consenting to receive the seed of the Spirit into her womb, into her very flesh. And that is a seed. I think we can probably call it that. That is, to which she must give herself entirely. Body and life and future, right? Her, her flesh will have to conform to its growth and flourishing and life. Not be aware of it. So, there's the word acceptance. The other thing we should note about the soil that bears fruit is... That that fruitfulness isn't standardized. But there's a gradient of fruitfulness. Um, it bears 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Um, that's not an insignificant detail about the fruitfulness um, of the plants, or of the seed of the kingdom. In fact, I would suggest that this might be the real cutting edge of the challenge of this parable. Is that detail 30 fold, 60 fold, and 100 fold? Because what it suggests is that our consent to the word is always something that's in process. That the fruitfulness of God's word in us, that once we've begun to consent to the word, that we've only just begun to consent to receive the word. That even when it seems to us that we have done all that we can to be surrendered to the, the promise of life in the word of God. That we've accepted it without any strings attached. That we are only one step along the way of continuing to give in. More and more completely and with even less reservation than we already know how to give. It means that our lives are to be lived as a good, as a good garden spot or a flourishing farm is stewarded. 
Our lives need to be lived as a process of ongoing cultivation that makes the soil exist in an ever more complete union with the seed that God sows in it. It means our life is an unending creative project of deepening, enriching, weeding out the things that would choke the word. And in some, it is an ever more radical surrender, an ever more complete conforming to the seed of the kingdom, an ever more total offering of ourselves to the project, not just of becoming more alive ourselves, but of becoming a source of fruitfulness for the life of the world. And so as we move now toward this table, I want to remind you of all that stuff that we said at the beginning of our reflection on this passage when we were trying to be amazed again by the promise and the potency of, of seeds. Um, the promise that the Word of God has intrinsic in it the promise of life. And with that in mind, I want to ask you, do you relate to Jesus? Do you relate to Jesus? Do you know Him as the sower of seed? Do you know Him as one who is speaking to you? Does He address you? And do you let yourself... He does address you, I should say. He does address you. He does speak to you. But do you let yourself be addressed? Listening and attending is the only stated imperative that Jesus gives in this passage. All the other stuff that we said that we can do throughout our reflection, that is stuff that it's fair for us to do. And for the record, Christians that have been dead for hundreds of years have been saying that same kind of thing. It's not original to me. Or our reflections tonight. But the only thing that Jesus specifies in this passage, and he does so four different times that we are supposed to do, the only imperative he offers is listen. Listen. He says in verse 3, at the very beginning, listen. A sower went out to sow. And then in verse 9, he says, let anyone with ears to hear, listen. Which he repeats again in verse 23, let anyone with ears to hear, listen. And then in verse 24, I think he, he reiterates that, that summons by saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what you hear. And so again, with, with the thought in mind, the promised potency of the word of God, are you listening to Jesus? Is your life ordered toward attending the Word? Attention. Not comprehension. Not understanding. I mean, Jesus kind of gives his disciples a hard time for not understanding in this passage. But I would suggest that what's going on there is actually that what he's saying about the parables that the disciples can't seem to get is exactly that. The parables have their own fruitfulness and they don't have to give or analyze it all the way. Attention, not comprehension, not being able even to articulate what is being attended. Listening is the posture, it seems, that takes us from being the soil that's on the path, past the soil that's shallow and choked with rocks, to the soil that is 
competing with the thorns that choke out the word toward becoming good soil that is ever more increasingly yielding grain and fruit. Listening is the activity of consenting to the word of God. Do you listen to Jesus as as one whose words aim to take root in your life? Do you listen to Jesus in the hope and confidence that the potency of the word doesn't depend upon you? It only depends upon your willingness to receive it. The seed grows of its own volition. As it does, it exposes competing desires. It breaks up compacted soil. It asks competing um, and, and distorted will in us to be uprooted. But even there, as we do those things, as we participate in the process of cultivation, even there, the part that we're playing in the growth of God's grace in our lives is entirely responsive. The sower has gone out to sow. The seed of his word is being scattered. The Lord speaks. Anything we do is in response to the potency of what he says. It's enough each day and always to devote ourselves to listening to Jesus who speaks to us. And who by so doing, sows in us the seeds of the kingdom. Amen.